By most accounts, the first databases came online in the 1960s. This class of software has continued to evolve alongside the technology it runs on and the applications it supports. In the early days, databases were typically closed-source commercial products. Today, many databases run in the cloud, on distributed systems. Increasingly, the leading tools are open-source, yet frequently supported by a related commercial entity offering managed services and white-glove support. In this episode, we interview Jonathan Ellis, CTO of Datastax, and Spencer Kimball, CEO of Cockroach Labs, about the current state of distributed databases and the open-source ecosystem. Well, Spencer and Jonathan, both of you, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. It's great to be back. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, I'm I'm pleased to join. So I hope listeners will go back and check out your previous appearances and learn a little bit more about your background and some of the things you've worked on. But uh, for those who haven't or haven't done that yet, maybe we can do a quick deep dive on your companies and various projects, perhaps starting with you, Spencer. Tell us a little bit about Cockroach Labs. Cockroach Labs is a relational SQL-based database system, and it's really aiming at uh, that product category. Let's say the the Oracle is a, probably the exemplar of the product category, but really reimagining what a relational database looks like when we have a global public cloud. Right? So that, I think, really is embracing two concepts of scale. One is extremely large data sets where you really want a relational database, And the other is geographic scale. So how do you really make the database work well for customers no matter where they are around the world? So we're about almost seven years old now, based in New York. We're about 300 employees, and we're growing quickly. Very cool. And Jonathan, how about you? Give us the high level on data stacks. Yeah, I started data stacks 11 years ago to commercialize Apache Cassandra which is you know, a NoSQL database that is focused on availability at scale. So we've had Cassandra clusters go through Hurricane Sandy and never lose you know, neither data nor availability because Cassandra is designed to run across regions and accept both reads and writes anywhere in the world. And so for the past uh, year or so, I've been working on a complementary project, which is Apache Pulsar. And how do we tie that in to Cassandra to provide not just the system of record, but the messaging between services at scale? When we move databases to the cloud, we get a lot of benefits, you know, certain redundancy distributed things like that, I guess. What are some of the drawbacks? Uh, Why is maybe a a single, simple tenant, uh, one database instance, even if it's impractical, desirable? Are there any challenges to moving to the cloud approach for databases? You know, I think uh, the more you care about performance, then the more you need to understand how your system works. So, and and most people are coming from uh, that single system background. And so, In some ways, a Cassandra or a Cockroach isn't actually more complicated than an Oracle or a MySQL, but it's it's different. It's not what people are used to. And so when you have 10 years of experience with that single machine model, there's there's definitely a tendency to say, oh, this new new thing is, is worse, it's more complicated. And there, there is some of that in, in the, when you move to a distributed system, but some of it's just that it's different. Yeah, I, I definitely second that. It, it, you hit it, the nail on the head, Jonathan. It's about inertia. Right? And in some of the customers that, that we have for Cockroach, especially the really large ones that have been around for decades, they've got a very evolved and complex deployment reality. And, and that evolution often incorporates a quite a bit of regulation, depending on the vertical. Financial services is a really good example. And in a very evolved IT infosec posture. And so if you think about all of those, uh, the evolution that's occurred over decades of using databases to up and move it into the cloud and, and even to go a step further and to move it into a fully managed service where another vendor holds your operational data, 
It's a lot to wrap your head around. So I think that's where there's the most significant hurdle. I think in the long run, when you kind of squint at the horizon, you see that for every company, the smallest, where I think it's most obviously useful to move to a fully managed service in the cloud, to the, the, the largest, where there's sort of the most sort of practical impediments, for everyone, it's going to be a better TCO to really embrace the cloud because it really, I think, lowers the costs, your total cost of ownership. You just faster time to value. You can ultimately do more uh, and do it less expensively. Uh, so that that's just the the picture that we have to paint, and uh, the reality is just that that inertia is natural, and it's it's natural for everyone. Wrapping your head around a new database is not something you do unless you really feel like there's a big benefit. Absolutely, with these cloud offerings available, uh, you have options like you'd mentioned to go fully managed. That uh, rather than standing this up myself, I can hire someone who does it best in class and knows how to do it for me, and then I just am a user and, and pay a service fee or something along those lines. But often there is still this story of some technology groups that want to maintain the ops presence or, or monitoring, or maybe they think they need to fine-tune a system. What do you see in practice? Are people migrating more towards fully managed services, or are there industries that really want to keep more control on things? I think that there's a mix, and I think that there's growing understanding in the industry as well of how to best leverage that mix. And what I mean by that is that you know, cloud services and cloud infrastructure in general, you know, you're paying a premium for those. And so you get the best return for that premium when you have a very elastic workload, when you need to uh, expand and contract that. And when you're on the contracting side, you're only paying for what you use. So if you have a workload that's uh, very consistent and very high volume, then that's probably going to cost you more money in the cloud than doing it yourself, even when you factor in all of the overheads of running your own infrastructure. So one of the great things about distributed infrastructure, distributed stateful infrastructure, like Cassandra, like Cockroach, is that you can take advantage of that infrastructure duality and you can deploy on-premises where that makes sense, and you can deploy in the cloud where that makes sense, and you can replicate between the two in a way that you couldn't with uh, technology from 15 years ago. Yeah, those are all good points. Definitely, I'd, we see the whole spectrum. And there's huge companies that are ready to, to move to fully managed already, and there's, of course, small companies that are insistent that they still run it themselves. And I think what we're going to see is that those distributions across the different segments of companies, they're all going to move continually towards being more eager and more accepting of having fully managed services, but they'll always remain a distribution. Like just sort of as an example, you know, a company like Facebook, whew, the data architecture that they've built, I mean, they've spent engineering millennia on it. And it is not something that could ever be put into Cockroach or put into Cassandra, right? Because they have, they've built a custom purpose-built database that is a, sort of a metadatabase made of hundreds of thousands, maybe, who knows, now even millions of instances of MySQL. And that is a, an incredible system that they've built. That's not something that they would ever be able to have a vendor fully managed for them. Uh, on the other hand, there's, there's things that looked big five years ago that are going to be easily within the footprint of a fully managed service. And, uh, you know, I just, I just feel like those distributions are going to move so that there's more and more mix of the fully managed over time. And, and, and the other thing I bring up is I think the dynamics of these kinds of industry-wide changes, they, they have these tipping point dynamics. So there's this, it happens in fits and starts and you see little green shoots and all of a sudden everyone's doing it. So that, that's something, that's a dynamic that, that we're already seeing playing out and I think it'll become very obvious. Just like, for example, it's very obvious in 2021 that no matter how, what vertical you're in, how big your company is, why would you run your own private cloud or build your own private cloud anymore? You've got to have an incredibly specific purpose in fact, everyone realizes, hey, the public cloud really has economics that are favorable. That, that's going to uh, permeate the entire ecosystem uh, all the way down to the database. I have a slightly related take on that, which is that just as there are the, some of the factors that you mentioned 
making it more attractive to use and adopt uh, the cloud in general, as well as fully managed cloud services, some of those factors are bleeding in to private cloud and reducing costs on that side as well. And I'm thinking specifically here of Kubernetes, where even a couple years ago, you could make a case that you know it was too early to go all in on Kubernetes. There were you know some growing pains around stateful sets, and there were still other companies saying that hey, our technology is better than Kubernetes. But I think in late 2021, it's fair to say Kubernetes has won. And as someone who has issues with uh, some of Kubernetes design decisions, that still makes me happy because having a single standard is just so much more convenient for everyone in the industry. And so what that what that means is that as you know as we're creating uh, Kubernetes based solutions to run, Cassandra in the cloud is part of our managed service, we can also bring that technology to customers who prefer to run their own private clouds and leverage that same Kubernetes technology to reduce uh, their costs and improve their efficiency. Yeah, we, we see that dynamic also playing out. And uh, what we try to do is we use Kubernetes internally so that the, the tools and the, and the sort of run books that we develop, uh, the operator, for example, is becoming very sophisticated. And that's the same one that we ultimately want to share to all of our customers that still do want to self-host. And there are still many, and, and I really do believe that's going to continue. I think the dynamic that's going to, besides you know economics, that's really going to push companies that uh, even can have the expertise to make their way in a private or hybrid environment uh, with cloud is in addition to, I think, what's going to be favorable economics in terms of total cost of ownership, there's increasingly this ecosystem advantage. And in the public cloud, it's not just Cockroach, for example, running a fully managed service on AWS that is easy to consume and has better economics. It's all the other things you need to build an application. It's your Cassandra. Right? It's, your, it's your Elasticsearch. It's your Confluent. Right? To the extent that you do that in a private cloud, it's a, there's an increasing set of things. Yeah, you've got Kubernetes, which makes it easier, and people will still follow that road. But there's pressure because of the additional ecosystem advantage. When you're, in, when you're playing in an ecosystem like AWS or GCP or Azure, you get a growing list of very competent vendors, each with their own economies of scale, that ultimately if you look at the horizon, can run that better even than you can run it, even with a very sophisticated Kubernetes operator. And all those integration points kind of get built by the vendors in terms of their partnerships. So there's a, I think there's a, there's a gravitational pull towards managed services in the public cloud, which will be difficult even for the companies that have today and even in the short to medium term an advantage that they feel that they can you know, maintain by going it alone and really be, making it a core competency to run a private cloud. But you know, it, like I said, it's just distributions moving. You're going to see the whole spectrum. And I think for companies like Datastax and Cockroach, one of our big advantages in 2021 is that we do allow hybrid. We do allow private. And that's a, that's a strategic advantage that we have over the big cloud players that say, you're going to only use the public cloud. And in fact, we're going to make it so that you only use our public cloud. That's not what a lot of companies are looking for. Well, there is a bit of an existential threat in that regard, uh, that maybe the big bad cloud provider could come in and offer a redundant service to what you're doing. Sort of especially a threat, I guess, when there's open source components. We've seen some drama recently between Elasticsearch and uh, Amazon and their fork and all that sort of thing. How do you guys perceive this potential existential threat to your own companies? I'll, I'll let Spencer go first because uh, I, th I think he's got some more interesting things to say about this one. I don't know about that. I'm sure we're, we're both noodling on this problem for years now. I mean, and so is everyone in our shoes. You know, both of us are working on uh, what were open core systems and uh, we're all trying to evolve and meet the challenges of this new reality. And, and Amazon's done more than any other vendor to, to move the state of the art, but also to put competitive pressure on what I thought was a really good open core model, but hey, you either evolve or you die, right? So I actually think that uh, Amazon's moves make sense in terms of how they run their business and why they're as successful as they are. Of course, we have to respond to that. As I mentioned, I think we actually, there, there are 
for all of the advantages that a hyperscale cloud vendor like Amazon or AWS has, they, there are openings. There are strategic advantages that uh, players like Cockroach and Datastax have. And one of those big ones is uh, we're going to offer a lot more flexibility. And if you think about the market, there's a, an incredible contingent of companies that are looking for what are they going to use for operational data stores to build their next generation of products and services. And those companies weren't, have, haven't really ever been in the segment of companies that are driving Amazon's success with, for example, Aurora and DynamoDB. These are companies that are still using Oracle and, and all of the sort of last generation of, of technology. But they're coming in mass to the cloud environments, and they're buying huge numbers of credit Credits, for example, with AWS or with GCP, these blocks of hundreds of millions of dollars that get spent over some number of years. Uh, those companies are a lot more sensitive to the, the, the flexibility that any solution that they're going to embrace in 2021 is going to offer them over the next 10 years. And so what Amazon's building on is a model that's worked very well at sort of the, the, the growth and sort of mid-level SMB or commercial segments of the market. But what everyone's going to be contending for is the incredible uh, inflow of dollars into cloud spend and cloud platform spend that's coming from the world's biggest companies, which just dwarf the other segments in terms of uh, you know, the potential. And so all that's going to grow the size of this market. So there's, just, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at play. And there's plenty of room for companies like ours to compete against these, these bigger players because we're very focused and we have the uh, opportunity through that focus of really providing different consumption models that appeal to what, what ultimately is going to be a, an outsized portion of this very fast-growing market. Yeah, and I, I think besides the, the consumption models, with it, which is you know, definitely an interesting aspect of the you know, competitive market dynamics, there's going to be some effect here on open source itself. So the, the classic uh, open source model, of course, uh, I, th I think it's fair to say that uh, you know, Richard Stallman and the Free Software Foundation kind of kicked that off in the 80s with the, the GPL. And then, of course, it became even more popular in the 90s with Linux. And you started to see other licenses like uh, the MPL, the MIT license, uh, the BSD license, of course, is, is super old, uh, and the Apache license. But all of these kind of had the assumption that you were either going to run this software yourself or you were going to pay a vendor to help you with it. And so if you're, if you're running it yourself, then you're motivated to contribute, if not patches. I think it's fairly rare, even historically, for people using Linux to contribute to the Linux kernel itself but, or to contribute patches. But contributing bug reports, like that's a form of contribution as well. You're creating value for the project and for everyone else using it by uh, sending a bug report or even just asking or answering questions on uh, forums on Stack Overflow and so forth, you're actually adding value to that to that project. And so that's what made open source so powerful as an, an engine for for growth and for innovation is that dynamic that you know either you were paying the vendor who created it and and so you were literally paying for it that way or you were contributing in other ways and and that was your form of you know of paying for that project i saw a statistic famously a, a few years back that Amazon had made more money from MySQL than Oracle. And that's probably true for most infrastructure projects out there. And not only are they making money from providing that infrastructure for the open source to run on, but they're standing up a, uh, you know, a fork of Elasticsearch to compete with Elastic. They're standing up, uh, they have a Kafka service that competes with Confluent. They have a uh, key spaces service that competes with uh, Datastax and with Cassandra. And critically, Amazon hasn't shown a whole lot of interest in contributing to these projects themselves. If, it's one thing if you're coming in and saying, hey, we're running a Cassandra service. And by the way, here's the improvements we've made to Cassandra to make it run better on EC2 and so forth. But that's, that hasn't been their uh, method of engagement so far. And so 
you're seeing what you're seeing is a new generation of infrastructure companies are treating this as basically a bug in the licenses that they're distributing their code under. And so I think the first one would have been the Afero GPL. And then people looked at that and said, well, this probably doesn't actually fix the problem as well as we need to. And so then you kind of got this second generation with the, the BSL, the business source license, and the, the Redis community license and the Confluent community license and so forth. Yeah, that's actually the route that we've embraced, which is the BSL, and and happily MariaDB created it. It's a, it was a good. It seemed like a really good model when we looked into all of the different alternatives. And essentially, I just give a quick explanation of the business source license. Uh, it involves a, a couple of unique features. You, you sort of start with the underlying license. In our case, it's the Apache that our core was previously licensed with. And then when you introduce the BSL, what you do is you create a term. So for how long the BSL will control and a list of exclusions on that sort of underlying license. So what you want, think of it as a a, a sort of like a patent protection. So you kind of protect your innovation for some period of time. So in our case, we set the term at three years. And the one exclusion we have is you don't, you're not allowed with that license to create a commercially available database as a service of cockroach. So it's kind of like uh, you can't just put cockroach into RDS if you're Amazon. And of course, it's not just Amazon, it's anyone. And then after three years, that version that's three years old can then, it reverts to Apache. So it always leaves open source in its wake, a trail of open source. Uh, but it uh, provides three years of protection for innovation. And I think that's one of the really crucial takeaways for me from this evolution of open source. And and that's really that there's still plenty of room for it, but you just need to make some some common sense alterations so that there's still room for innovation and uh, the profit that can feed the innovation. And the reality is you look at Redis, you look at Elastic, you look at Confluent, all the examples that Jonathan mentioned, and all of them are doing a very wonderful, building very wonderful businesses competing directly with uh, Amazon, for example, and, and others as well. And yeah, I mean, Amazon also has a great business selling Redis and uh, even more money than Oracle. I didn't know that. That's a pretty interesting stat. Uh, but at the same time, you know, none of these companies they're competing with are doing that poorly. And I think um, there's, there's that much more interesting developments to come uh, because of that point I made earlier, there's a lot of additional companies now entering into this uh, new ecosystem. And that's going to drive more innovation in the companies that really focus on their core product, as opposed to offering everything under the sun like Amazon, they can really create innovation that's going to be interesting at that high end of the market where a lot of the new opportunity is. Right, I think it's going to be super interesting to see what happens over the next uh, couple of years to see if there's some kind of standardization around you know, the BSL or around uh, one of these other licensing approaches with, uh, with this next generation of infrastructure. Do you guys have any advice for how to start and nurture an open source project? Uh, I guess it depends on what stage you're, you're starting out at. I, if you're starting from zero, then step one is you need to eat breathe and dream about the community that you're building. Uh, So it's not just about the code, like the code. I think engineers tend to have this kind of assumption that if you write great code, then it will be its own marketing. Uh, But that's that's not the way it works. And that's not the way it works in either open source or proprietary software. And so the the first thing you do after you have that minimum viable product is you need to be available. Like if somebody comes onto your forum or onto Stack Overflow or onto Discord or wherever you're directing people to ask questions, they need to get answers within a single digit number of minutes or they're going to go away. And so it's just super, super critical to bootstrap that as religiously as you possibly can. Uh, that, that, that's I, mean, I really would second that. That's uh, it's a great answer. The, these open source projects, when you start them, they are fragile. It's exactly what Jonathan's saying. I mean, there's a there's a short window by which you can make uh, somebody a champion or lose them forever. I would say that there's also sort of a, a short 
window for a product. If you, if you get too far along in a bubble, you know, hey, we've got to keep this thing secret. It's going to be the greatest thing, and I need to get, get it really, get this impressive MVP. I think that can be a mistake because you want to get information from your fledgling community as soon as possible. So really dial back what that MVP is and blog about it, right? So that's sort of like, the, you know, one of the practical steps you can take to really start to find you know, put your tentacles out there, your feelers, find out who might be interested in what you're building, uh, blog about it, try to get that onto Hacker News, which, by the way, is, is, is priceless. If you can get on the front page of Hacker News, that will, that will give you your in, initial cohort of those early adopters and innovators that are interested in what you're building. And then, like everything in life, there's just this really simple way to succeed, which is focus on the small things and put love and attention into them. Never miss an opportunity if someone reaches out to you to take the time to answer their question. No matter how foolish you might think the question is or how off topic, you know, find out a little bit about what they're doing. Take the time to help them. You build these communities one person at a time, one question at a time. You start to focus on those little things with love and attention, and the whole thing will blossom. And I'm curious how being open source, or at least having certain open source components of your projects, impacts your development cycle. Uh, do you feel, I don't know, under more pressure because all the code is there naked right on the repository? I, I think it, it probably has less of an impact on the development cycle than just on the, the mentality, for lack of a better word, of doing everything in the open. So this, this can definitely be an adjustment for you know, people who haven't worked on open source before to come in and your job is to contribute to Cassandra now and you post your first pull request and then some senior engineer who's probably at a different company uh, points out the things that you need to improve. And so having that very public, literally anyone on the internet can read where somebody reviewed your code and sent it back for improvements, that's, that's a really hard adjustment for some people to make. For people like fresh out of college where that's like the only experience they've had and that's normal for them, not so much. So again, there's, there's, there's definitely a, a difference based on what your expectations are. Yeah, I've definitely found in my experience with all the open source projects I've worked on that there's value in terms of quality and having your work available. So it's kind of like there's some aphorisms, right? Uh, you know, many eyeballs makes bug, might make bugs transparent in open source. And that's one of like the, one of the early open source luminaries said something along those lines. And also, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. And I do think these things are true. Like to have your, your, your work available out there, it does, I think, help the average open source contributor to have some motivation, like an impetus to really care about what they're putting out there because their name is fundamentally attached to that, right? Anyone can, can, can get blame that line and find out <laughs> exactly what the provenance was of it and, and, the, and all the comments and the code reviews and things like that. So I think it's kind of like this constant pressure that, that makes people try a little bit harder. And that adds up. Like that's a, I mean, every little, like everyone knows it's build a complex project of any sort, whether it's been closed source or open source. Like the little bits of technical debt you create, they create a cumulative cost. So you, you want to minimize that as far as possible. And I think open source is, is, a, is a really strong, positive influence in that direction. The other thing I really like about open source is, is how it kind of strips away the uh, distractions from the technology and the, the decisions around that. So there's, I, I guess there's a, there's a good side and a dark side to this. The dark side is when sometimes you get in a situation where in an open source project, there will be you know, some engineer who has way more time on his hands than, uh, than is good and who really wants to go to the mat to argue something to the, to the death. I said his, it could be her, but it usually is a his who wants to just, just stall the progress on you know, some innovation until everyone agrees uh, to do it their way. But the, the good side of, of just kind of uh, you know, stripping away the usual interpersonal things and, and so forth is that I would review the most senior engineers patch 
the same way as the most junior, right? Like you, you have that kind of democratization of, of the code that, you know, it, it's not, you know, what, what it says on your resume or where you went to school. It's what, you know, how good is your code? How good is this patch that you uh, sent to the project? And, and it's refreshing to have that level playing field. Yeah, I like that. That really echoes my sentiment uh, exactly. It's just that that idea of you know it doesn't matter who the patch is coming from. Put that equal effort into it. Really, especially give your love to that uh, more junior engineer and your attention, right? Because you're going to up level them, and then they're going to become a stronger contributor over time, and ultimately start to take take on some of that task themselves and really scale the project. Like you get in every open source project I've been involved in. Like this is true for closed source too, unquestionably. There are there are certain connectors become sort of the hubs and the and the and the graph of all of the different people that are, are con- contributors to the code, and and those are folks you never want to lose because they really put in this incredible effort that I, I can never find myself capable of matching. But of responding to virtually every pull request that comes in, they're constantly. Uh, out there trying to improve everything and to up level everyone, and when you when you get someone like that, uh, you know that's 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 someone to cultivate and someone to really embrace and give them as much responsibility as they're willing to take. And this is one of the cool things about open source is that it really is larger than any single company. So I can think of engineers who have contributed to Cassandra uh, as employees of three different companies, and and that's really cool that that you know that institutional knowledge about the the project uh, can be retained uh, across that that lifetime uh, of work. Oh, that's a very neat example. Yeah, there was a. I guess a historical perception that open source was often lagging behind, that it was the knockoff of the quote unquote real product made by the, you know, commercial closed source team and that they were just kind of, I don't know, having a lagging process of copying features or something like that. I think that's probably a straw man argument, but maybe it was true at some point. What do you see as the current state? Why has open source really been a, a leading uh, a flagship path that that a lot of systems are taking rather than being closed source. Well, I, I can offer my perspective just on databases. When we started building CockroachDB, I guess seven and three quarters years ago, my reaction post Google in 2012 when I left and looked at all the different things that were available for, for operational databases was just that, boy, of all the things out there, I'm certainly going to use open source because Databases can be pretty complex, and if you want to build something really ambitious, not being able to rely on that larger community, not being able to go in there and, and, and sort of debug your own problems, it's almost a, it's a non-starter if you really have ambitions. And that was really the, the uh, position of, of people at Google, just because no matter what open source project Google might bring in and use and really scale there were going to be issues. I mean, Google was busy trying to fix things in the Linux kernel, right? That was a, a pretty interesting example. But for, for them, not having open source, anything that they were forced to use closed source, is just a much more difficult process to really get it to do exactly what they wanted. And that's always been my approach. And so uh, open source, for me, was the, the only viable path to actually building a database that would, could succeed in the, the, the late 2010s and now going into the 2020s. And I think that if you queried developers, for example, that are kind of in that early adopter or innovator part of that crossing the chasm bell curve, those, those are the folks that are, that are often on Hacker News. I bet if you surveyed them and you asked them uh, whether their comfort level is higher with open source than closed source, you get a pretty definitive answer. And that's ultimately why it's open source that's leading the charge now. It's the, it's the faith that developers sort of worldwide put into open source software. It's just a better model, and I think people recognize that. Yeah, and I, I think there's a, a couple just market dynamics that are contributing to this as well. If, if I'm starting a company around, and this is specific to the infrastructure space, right? If I'm starting a company where I'm saying, I'm going to build a better message bus and you should trust your data to my new product, you know, I'm going to need 
an A round of you know hundreds of millions of dollars to get that product to the point of maturity it takes to get awareness in the marketplace and to get people uh, to you know to have that level of trust in that proprietary product. Contrawise, if I if I start that as open source the way. Uh, and since I'm talking about message buses, the way Apache Kafka was by the founders of Confluent or Apache Pulsar was by the people at Yahoo, then I, I can use that as a growth hack. It's an adoption and a marketing mechanism where companies are much more comfortable deploying an open source project that's a, you know, it's a 1.0 project or maybe it's an even an 0.9 project because you know, they, they recognize that worst case scenario, if I have to, my engineers can figure this out and how to how to fix bugs in this or how to migrate me off of it if, if it comes to that. And so there's that security and that assurance that lets companies adopt your project or your product faster than they would with a proprietary approach. And then the other thing is that, you know, just like one of the things that I, I was very serious about when I started Datastacks is uh, building a remote first engineering culture because you know, there are some really, really smart engineers in, in Google and in the Bay Area in general, right? But if we compare all the smart engineers in all of the Bay Area versus the smart engineers in the rest of the world combined, like the rest of the world wins hands down. And so there's a, a bit of that dynamic in open source as well, where it's like, do you want to bet on the engineers building uh, the Solaris kernel? Like they're super smart guys, not taking that away from them, but do you want to bet on them or do you want to bet, bet on everyone else in the world contributing to Linux? Yeah, those are great points. Uh, you you knocked something loose in my memory, and I wish I could remember the gentleman I was talking to. It was someone that was advising me early on when building Cockroach Labs. And he made this point that uh, there's an information asymmetry available to companies that are building open source products or open core products in that by having that community that starts so early and that early feedback and outside contributors. And one thing that you always see when you have an early open source project is some huge company or some champion at a huge company. It's like, we want to use this now. And it's like, well, it's, it's in alpha. It doesn't quite work for you yet. But that person can immediately give you all kinds of insight into what's going to make your product wonderful if it could do this, this, and the other thing. You don't get that when you're building in a bubble in a closed source environment, or it's much more difficult. You know, you're, you're out there trying to talk to people and educate them. You don't get to blast out on Hacker News to 10,000 people, of which some small percent, but it actually adds up to an absolute number that's meaningful in terms of, of information that's really targeted about how you can build the best product to actually meet the market. So there's an an information asymmetry advantage available in the open source model that I think allows you to build better software faster. That's a really good point. Like engineers working on open source have like they they're like two clicks away from getting direct feedback from you know people using that software versus my experience at least in the proprietary software world is that's usually filtered through you know several layers of support and product management so i'm curious when commercialization of open source was first introduced to me it was the i the company red hat you know they'd built a, a very popular linux distribution I guess if you're a developer evangelist at the company, you'd say it's the best Linux distribution, and they gave it away, and then they were going to sell services on top of that. You come to us when you need you know, the people that built it to help you run it, or things like that. And the unit economics of that, I guess, worked out pretty well for them. Could you compare and contrast how that model compares to your own companies? I mean, I think at a, at a super, super high level, uh, you know, Datastax wants to be the red hat of Cassandra, right? And I think that's definitely the example that, that most people point to, you know, when they're uh, talking to venture capitalists and so forth of, you know, Red Hat is like the poster child for creating a successful business on top of open source. I think that the biggest difference I would point to that's, that's different in 2021 versus, uh, gosh, I don't remember when Red Hat was founded, but it was in the 90s sometime, 
The biggest different now, difference now uh, in the infrastructure space is the prevalence of the cloud. And so that includes both you know, the, the Kubernetes layer that allows you to you know, deploy across private clouds in a standard way, but it also includes the managed services that you can build as one of the innovators around an open source project. I think that is the main way, more than the classic services and support model, the main way to fund open source in the future is uh, these, these uh, managed services. And that's why, coming back to the earlier uh, point, that's why it's so critical to get the licensing model right in a way that allows uh, the companies doing the innovation to continue to fund that innovation. Yeah, I'll uh, try to add, uh, maybe I'm just going to echo your point exactly, Jonathan, because I think you made all the, the right, you touched on all the right things. Basically, I think the reason open source had such an ascendancy in the aughts and 2010s, maybe even the late 90s, is because offered a faster time to value. I, I mean, adoption of any software ultimately is going to come down to its utility. And developers, if you think about the closed source model previously, right, they, they would get some, something at a conference or in some trade mag, and they'd, they'd be interested in it, and then some, you know, get some rep on the phone, and they'd come visit you, and they'd explain it and educate you. And then you'd have to go through procurement, and you'd finally get the thing, and maybe need some machines to run it, so this would have to be requisitioned. This thing could take months. I mean, literally, it could easily take six months. Depends on how complex the software was. Uh, of course, then you have to learn how to run it and everything and, and use it. Uh, with open source, all of a sudden, you had, and by the way, you got printed manuals sent to you in the mail, right, and, and CDs and things. So open source, of course, with the, the rise of, of the, the sort of early cloud and uh, you know, the HTTP and so forth, uh, being able to surf the web, find these communities, things that have morphed into Stack Overflow over the years, but you, know, you used to have Usenet groups and things. Uh, all of that, provided a much faster time to value, right? And all of a sudden, now as a developer at an organization trying to make some product or service a reality, you're able to say, hey, well, I need this, this, and this other thing. They're all open source. I can go read about them. I have questions. I put them in. I can get a response in an hour. Or their response is already there when I search on Google. So that was just such an obvious win. You could shave months off your time to get something in, uh, valuable that you could either show uh, to other folks in order to get funding or actually just build and deploy, which is another very common pattern. What we're seeing now is a, a move to even faster time to value. And it's why these open sources is, is again evolving. It's, it's certainly not going away for some of the, uh, for, for the reasons of community, transparency, uh, speed of evolution, information asymmetry, uh, marketing. I mean, open source is a wonderful marketing channel. It's people, people have a good feeling about it, right? They, they, they like the idea that they can get in there and understand the ideas if they need to. So all of that is going to keep open source there, but it's really how does it further evolve in order to create faster time to value? And here you realize that a fully managed service, especially one that has a f totally free tier that you can start on that can get you really a long way before you might have to put a credit card down. This actually means that not only can you access that community and, and, and embrace all the benefits of open source, but now you can eliminate the need to learn how to run the software. Right? You just have to learn how to use it. For example, with the database, you got to learn how to, you know, what, what are the differences in terms of the ORM that I have to use or, or whatever it is? How do I integrate this with my application? But now you don't have to learn how to set up alerting and uh, how to properly deploy it and configure things in complex ways. So now you say that, hey, instead of getting started in, say, several weeks of trying to learn how to run uh, the different pieces of open source software that you have to deploy into containers and on VMs out there in the public cloud, but it's like, okay, I'm actually just going to write my application and this whole thing's going to run because other, other folks already know how to run this and actually have a very competent way of running them. So the time to values decreased. So open source coupled with fully managed services that have free tiers, it's kind of like all the best aspects of open source, but even faster time to value. So it seems pretty clear to me that that will be the future. Exactly. As a software engineer, I really don't want to ever have to worry about the compiler same as I don't want to have to worry about right. the electric or the water coming into my house. Maybe if I'm a heads-down application developer and I'd like to take some of the same approaches to adopting a distributed database, I'd love to just benefit from the right product choice. But under the hood, I know there's things like the CAP theorem and maybe the Paxos protocol going on. 
To what degree should a developer educate themselves about distributed systems before working with a distributed systems database? Man, that's uh, that's a that's a really excellent uh, <laughs> topic question. there. As a database nerd, it, it hurts me to say this, but a, a lot of people want the database to be you know like the compiler, like you said, they you know just want it to work. Don't want to have to think too hard about you know dash o two versus dash o three or whatever. And you know similarly on the database side, uh, a lot of developers just want to put their data in and get their data out and and move on with their day. And so one of the things that that I think is going to come out of this, and and then I'll come back to uh, what I think the flip side is, but one of the things that's going to come out of this is that, you know, people just want, uh, you know, to get their data out with a REST API. They don't want to install an ORM. They don't want to install a a traditional, uh, you know, fat client driver. Uh, they just want to make an HTTP call, whether it's REST, whether it's GraphQL, and that's how they're going to interact with their database. The flip side is, I said much earlier that you know, the more you care about performance, the more you do need to understand how the system works uh, under the hood. And that that's not going to change. Uh, I don't see how it could change. And so there is always going to be that need for people who have that next level down understanding and you know what happens when I do a join that has to hit multiple machines and how, why is why is that significantly slower than than an, a query that only hits a single partition and so forth yeah i think performance is uh, the critical sort of uh, threshold once you start to care about performance then you need to learn more uh, i think before that there's an opportunity to you know, really treat a lot of the things out on the market, whether it's Mongo or Dynamo or Cassandra or Cockroach or Aurora, you can, you can squint and they're all going to pretty much do what you want, especially if they all offer simplified interfaces to Jonathan's point. I, I think that there's kind of an approach that can be very helpful for developers that are trying to build something and, and don't yet know all the ins and outs that would allow them to make a truly informed choice about what's what's the best software for the task at hand. And that's association. So, you know, what are other people doing? What are some of those use cases that you can pattern match with the thing that you have in mind that you want to build? Like, where are your customers? Uh, are they geographically dis- dis- distributed? How much scale are you planning to have? You know, what sort of features do you have? And then you, you look at a company that has something similar that they've built or an, another open source project, for example, that, that you can kind of look in and say, what are the, the choices? There's lots of blog posts that companies put out. Uh, and you can just pattern match there and find something that's relatively close and say, well, what did they choose? Do I, do I think they're, they're a good set of engineers that are making good decisions? And sort of part and parcel to that, when you actually look at what a company like Cockroach or Datastax needs to do, it's really to build reference architectures. So you have, let's say, a forkable repo that uses Cassandra that gets something done that's useful. And they could just fork that code and actually start to build on that. And they know that, hey, this is already something that is a reference architecture that's well-tuned to what Cassandra is going to offer. And so I can run with that and feel pretty confident that both the company understands my use case so they can support me, but that you know this use case will definitely work with Cassandra for doing something that's very close to what I need to do. So I think that's a good approach for people that, because it's, it's a, you know, to Jonathan's point about being a database nerd, I guess I've become one too. It's, um, you can spend years understanding these things and, and still realize you've got a lot to learn. Yeah, so I think the difference between good product design and bad is that uh, with a good design, you can let people be productive with a set of knowledge that's appropriate to what they're trying to accomplish. In other words, you know, if I'm trying to build a demo on my laptop, I should have to understand I, I sh- I, the requirement of what I, I need to know about the system should be much lower than you know, if I'm Home Depot serving 100,000 requests per second out of my production cluster. So having that learning curve where you can get to the next level when you need it and not have to preload that to get your first hello world done, that's a good design. 
Well, speaking of Hello World, maybe to wrap up, we could give the pitch for what is the use case that typical developers and companies find themselves having that leads them to explore CockroachDB and also Datastax as the tool of choice? So for Cockroach, I'd say the, the really killer differentiator that we've put a lot into well, there's two. There's there's high scale, and you know we, we have a theory just that there's there's sort of analytical big data, but now there's transactional big data because it's not just humans on desktops or humans on mobile devices. It's now virtual and uh, IoT type things that are all hitting APIs, which ultimately have to hit an operational database. So there's that data intensivity, and then there's also hey, you know nowadays with global app stores and global public cloud. Anyone could build a product or service that could reach people in Brazil as easily as it can reach people in Australia, and you want that to work equally well. And so really building for that geographic reach is something that we've invested heavily in with Cockroach. And of course, both of those are within the context of, do you need a SQL database? So I, I think that, that's sort of the killer feature. You need those differentiators, and you really your preference, whether it's institutional muscle memory or it's, uh, you know, we really want to have the sort of SQL as our, our query engine, or we need to have uh, ways to explicitly manage the data model. All those things would, would bias you towards using SQL. So if SQL is your product category and you have a need for those differentiators, that's the sweet spot for Cockroach. Yeah, Cassandra was, was created to solve problems of performance and scale that uh, SQL databases couldn't tackle. And uh, certainly, you know, Cockroach is, is uh, solving those in a different way. Uh, so the, the distinction I would make there is that Cassandra places more emphasis on performance to the point where our default isolation level, to use a, a relational term, uh, the default isolation level is, you know, just read everything. And so you can opt in to more strict serialization, but Cassandra's emphasis is on, I want to do you know, high performance, thousands or hundreds of thousands of operations per second across anywhere in the world. Very cool. Well, Spencer and Jonathan, thank you both so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. Kyle, it was my pleasure. 